0: Happy
1: Monday, and welcome back to the final week of the Rocketeer Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we've been going over the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of tvdads.com.
2: And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And Jim, we're diving into Minute 106, our our last Monday. In fact, this isn't even a full week, uh, four episodes and counting. And we have had we have had so many great guests on the show, and we have had have been so lucky to have some of the people involved in the film. And what an absolute thrill it is to say! Uh, not only did uh, did we somehow con uh, screenwriter Danny Bilson into coming con- back, convinced, convinced, convinced. It, it, con, it, con is short for convinced, sure. okay. um, but uh, but he's brought uh, Paul DeMeo with him, and the two of them together have uh, shared screenwriting credit on The Rocketeer. And an amazing number of other things over the last couple of decades. So, uh, Paul, Danny, uh, welcome. Danny, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks. I'm glad to
4: drag Paul here.
3: Yeah, and uh, thanks for having me. Glad to, uh, glad to be a guest. You guys have done a, a pretty crazy thing here. <laughs> which, <laughs> You're not which, the first to point that out. <laughs> which I greatly appreciate, by the way.
1: It's it's good going over going over old times, especially you know from a quarter century ago. That uh, it's amazing how much people remember ab- about this era. But I guess these were exciting times in, in a lot of people's lives.
3: Well, the one thing I noticed is listening. I, I probably listened to six or eight episodes, and the one thing I noticed, which is great, is people will remember things or talk about aspects of the film that i either wasn't present for or or had no idea or don't remember in the least so it's really nice for me too because it gives me a fuller picture and a kind of permanent record of the movie which is pretty unique which is very cool guys
2: well thank you thanks very much it's uh we've talked so much on the show about how frustrating it is that we don't have a a, you know a a nice blu-ray release with lots of extras or making of or (laughs) any kind of commentary and things like that and uh I don't think we had such grand designs when we set out, but when we look back on a hundred plus episodes, I feel like we've got uh, uh, we've got one of the better repositories of uh, the in depth looks at the I film.
4: Think you do, yeah, oh, yeah. kind I of mean, the
1: annotated edition.
0: Yeah, you have the best.
4: You have the best repository. There's a, there's nothing even close.
1: Well, that's uh, well. We haven't talked to Mike Bruno recently, but he, he has the <laughs> ultimate repository. Of he's got the the
2: repository of uh, everything you see in the movie. But uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing to me and i always uh, we we go through this every time and you know let's let's not gush how but i always end up doing a little bit of it and, and danny you heard all this before but i am happy to say it again it's amazing to me to sit here and think uh that uh we're four guys having a conversation but you two guys in particular working so closely with dave stevens you thought this up you know this uh this came out of your heads uh based on his work we have this love of the movie in common, except from you know, Jim and me, we're on the consumer side of it. So to be able to chat with you guys on the creative side of it, to say thank you once again for that uh, work you did, you know, a couple of decades ago, it's it's such a privilege.
4: Yeah, but what we do have in common is we were on the consumer side of the first series of books. We got to contribute to the second yeah, series, but Paul and I walked into that comic book store back in eighty, gosh, eighty five or something. Maybe eighty four even. It was somewhere around there. The Golden Apple on Melrose and in the bins we found the Comico Rocketeer episodes and, and we were the we were fell in love just like you guys did with Dave's work. And I will always credit Dave for this for the Well Rocketeer.
3: I remember looking at the cover of one of the comics and turning to Danny and saying, This guy's a movie <laughs> you know. Just just <laughs> the image of the character. And it was period and, you know, all that stuff that we love that I know Danny's talked about how so much of our influences fall back to old movies and and uh, the old serials and and just our uh, deep appreciation for those films of that era. Seeing a, a the art that Dave did and how committed he was to recreating the period and dialogue and all that—it it really drew us in right from the start.
1: Yeah, and, and getting to put Rondo Hatton back up on the big screen—that well, was, yeah, that, <laughs> that was a gift. That was, <laughs> right.
2: and Errol Flynn, in a manner of speaking, sure. uh, you know, yeah, was yeah, those
0: were
3: our ideas. <laughs> yeah, that you know, the whole—I know Danny talked about the whole Rondo thing. That's one of, to me, still one of the most unbelievable things we pulled off <laughs> in the movie, is that yep, yep. you know. Having that character, uh, for as many people who actually knew what we were doing at the time the movie came out, I assume a certain amount of the the audience recognized the character, but certainly younger kids didn't know what we were doing. They just thought, oh, big, creepy, scary, tall guy. But that, yeah. was, uh, that was a great uh, bit, is getting him in there. And then, of course, uh, Dave and I and Danny incorporated uh, Lothar into the second Rocketeer series comic as well.
1: Yeah, which was fantastic graphic work, uh, you know, in Dave's hands. Oh, just being a, you know, uh, y- some of those, those pages are just amazing. Yeah,
3: it's, um, oh. well, the work in the art is what made him so slow. In a way, it's one of the reasons why The Rocketeer is a comic book movie, a comic book-based movie, I think is special in that when the movie was released, you know, there were only those six initial issues that were published, and it was not a uh, mainstream character, certainly aficionados knew the book and and were aware of Dave, but it wasn't anything like, you know, Superman or Batman or any of the more famous characters, and there also wasn't a huge body of work that already existed for the character, so you didn't get into all this stuff about, oh God, what story are we going to tell, you know, there have been 50 years of uh, comics about the Rocketeer, so... We started pretty much with, okay, let's begin with whatever parts of the original story work and build out from there. And there's sections in the uh, movie, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with uh, from your familiarity with the comics themselves, that are literally transcribed from like the opening uh, chase with the gangsters and um, uh, the rescue, the first big rescue of Malcolm when the plane is going down. Those are right out of the pages of the book. All the stuff at the airfield, quite a lot of that.
1: Even Millie with the frying pan. Yeah,
3: there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in there that was right in the comic. And we knew that we had to preserve that. You know, the, uh, the Howard Hughes character, which in the book was Dave's kind of disguised uh, Doc Savage, which we had to change. But so many elements stayed the same. It allowed us then to add the bigger things. To make it more into a full-scale movie, but absolutely, it's in my mind there are whole stretches of that movie that are just literal uh, transcriptions of what Dave did, and that to me is really pleasing. And I know he liked that as well.
1: Was it difficult uh, extracting uh, the Betty Page character and and her photographer f- uh, friend out of the whole out of the whole script when you were rewriting for Jenny? How how did that go?
3: Well. My memory of that is I don't think we ever had the cheesecake plot with the photographer Danny did we even have him in the earliest versions of the, of the story I don't think we did
4: no I don't think so I mean I know we called her Betty until Disney right changed but the, the name. whole and we did have I may have mentioned it in the last one if, if it got through the censors we did have some <laughs> some some more edgy sexual references in earlier treatments or drafts that was us taking a shot at a few things but uh that didn't happen. I did talk about the run uh, the Lothar and the panties didn't I last time? And the No. uh, I didn't (laughs) Lothar and the panties okay now now he's talking about one island. Okay.
1: If you did
2: I blotted it out because it was traumatic so we might as well dive in since you've opened the door.
4: (laughs) No, I remember it was either in a treatment I think we wrote the scene Where he's searching the house, and he's he's in where where he's into the cliff and Peavy's place, and or no, or did he go at? Somehow he got into Betty's room, and he got a a drawer open, and he got a pair of her panties out, and he I didn't want to go further on the air. Oh dear. Okay. This going to take a really, I will dark say, he, yeah. yeah, he did not put them yeah. on. He did not do that. Okay. It was, it was <laughs> okay. something actually less savory, but let's just move yeah. on. <laughs> and uh, so, but though I'm sure that those ideas were influenced by the original stuff where she was, uh, you know, more towards Betty. Page. Right. I don't, I don't forward. recall that yeah. in
3: our draft or even in the early stories that her primary job was ever like cheesecake model. I think pinup model. I think it was no, it was it always actress slash extra. Maybe at some point we flirted with oh, maybe she does a little, you know, posing on the side, but that went away pretty fast as I recall.
1: Uh, Danny had mentioned uh, that you were it, that both of you were kind of, uh, I would say, shocked. I, I think that's the most positive attitude at, at uh, Alan Arkin's performance of Peavy, the way he read it. You were expecting more of like a Joe Pesci, uh, Danny DeVito type of snappy, peppy uh, delivery, and he yeah. Was um, comic.
3: Well, we modeled our interpretation of the character on Dave's interpretation, and to me, the relationship between Peavy and and Cliff was always, in, low, in those old movies, those old aviator movies, if if Cliff were Jimmy Stewart, uh, Peavy would have been one of those great, fast-talking character actors like William Demarest. You know, he would have been, It needed, yeah. we always thought of it as having that fast, snappy Howard Hawks type rhythm. I remember being on the set a couple of times, and I didn't talk to Arkin a lot. But I did speak to him a couple of times, and they'd already been shooting for two or three weeks. He said something to me about, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure this character out and to get him. But he felt more comfortable at that time. And in a way, you know, of course, the movie was shot out of sequence. But there are scenes where I can feel that he's getting more into the rhythm of it and, you know, and... More into the snap of it. I thought it was all on the page. So, and he's a brilliant actor. So, I think somehow he was searching to find that character. And if somebody had just said to him, "Hey, 1930s movie, you're the best friend. You know, you're the you're the wisecracking, yeah. cynical, snappy best friend." A guy like Arkin, he would have got that in a second.
1: Not, not that uh, I mean, coming across as a vuncular worked for him too. I, I think that you know, yeah. coming across as a mentor. Oh, no, not at all. Didn't didn't hurt the film. But there was, but, yeah, always, was a different take than you know, what the writers had.
3: In, even Dave's story, there was always a father-son type of relationship between the two. You know, Cliff was the errant boy and Peavy was the guy trying to talk some
0: sense into his thick skull. Yeah. So
2: how, uh, how much were, uh, were you around the actual production of it? You know, in talking to Danny last time, you know, it sounded like you guys had uh, kind of moved on by the time the bulk of the production well, was up and running.
3: I think listening to Danny's episodes, you know, it was frustrating for us and frustrating for Joe as well because he would have preferred to have us on the set a lot more is we were right in the middle of production on the flash series then and so anytime we had an opportunity to go to the set we would take it and certainly when they were shooting on the disney uh sets on the stages on the lot because we were warner brothers that's five minutes away so when we had time we would run over there Um, i remember going to see the zeppelin exterior set which was where was that danny vasquez rocks out there somewhere near magic mountain i think no i thought is was, that was where it out was? there somewhere where they built the tail that. section were you I, out there that night because i remember oh, going out there when they were uh, shooting. i remember going out there when they were shooting the tail section stuff with the uh you know with the stunt doubles running up and down the tail and um oh
4: I remember two hours in traffic going to Long Beach to where the hangar was, where yeah. Howard Hughes' office was. I do remember yeah. that. Yeah. And, of course, I remember going out to um, near uh, Valencia where the where the Bulldog Cafe was right. at one time. Because right. that's the time we were driving back and, and Dalton was in the car next to us and we were pretending we were in a James Bond villain chase. I do yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was the first time we met Tim it was when we went out
3: there to talk to him about the part. And, you know, he's... I remember that Danny was talking about, uh, or you guys were talking about uh, when Dalton went into the German accent in the Zeppelin um, gondola. And right. the first time Danny and I saw the, the dailies for that, and I think this was, I don't know who else had the same reaction. We we looked at each other and it's like, what is he doing? <laughs> because that wasn't in the script. But I have to tell you, in all honesty, when I've seen the film in recent years, and, or when I and certainly when I saw it when they did the screening uh, for the 20th anniversary, I've come more and more to appreciate the different layers to his performance. And I think what he was trying to do at the end was to simply show he was kind of cracking up a little bit. And this is just my interpretation, is that he was cracking up a little bit. All facade falls away, and this is who I really am, the German who's faking right. the accent. And I'm dropping it. But there was another thing that Tim wanted to do. And I remember talking to him. And Danny, I think, was there. And, of course, and I think even Joe Johnston was there. And he had this idea in his head that Sinclair should be falling in love with Jenny during the course of the story. And I think it ended up, and we didn't agree with that. We thought, look, this is just a mission. I mean, maybe you're a guy that thinks she's attractive. You're going to work her. But we don't really see the character literally falling in love with her. As part of his psychosis or whatever, but I think it's all—it all, it all yeah. just played as subtext. There's nothing really overt
4: in the movie where that's happening. Well, you can see it in the club when he's having dinner with her and he's all yeah, real, but you could also just interpret. Her. Yeah, that, I remember just- that.
1: Well, and when, when he's holding up the negligee and stuff like that, and he's talking about how desperately he wants to see her in and all this other stuff, he wasn't. It didn't seem like acting. It seemed more like he was getting, he was getting, into, getting it a into it too, because too
3: much. Because he was like Errol Flynn, and he light sleeping with a lot of women, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah, I, I always just there's always that. Yeah. Yes, not unique to Errol Flynn, but certainly <laughs> part of that. Certainly part of that actor's reputation. And you know, in right. his house, there was there was all in the actual Errol Flynn's house. And I remember, Danny, we talked about putting this in the script. Is that in the actual house that I think the ruins of it are still up in the Hollywood Hills, and he called it like the Eagle's Nest or something like that. Do you remember Danny the story that there was like a mirrored panel in the ceiling of the bedroom with a camera in it? Do you remember that story? Yeah, because no. we had talked about doing no. something that like that in Sinclair's house, but that was one of the rumors of the house of the actual uh, Errol Flynn. So we, you know, we would try and incorporate mm. those little bits here and there. A lot of it was just for us; nobody else I, noticed. You know?
1: were, you, were, were you ever were you ever tempted to make it Errol Flynn rather than? You know, a, a character we you never thought
4: we never no because, you know, we were playing off that legend that he was right. a Nazi spy. Yeah. I don't know that we ever believed it or wanted to sully his memory in any way like that. You know, it was.
1: Yeah, we were just playing
4: off the the rumor. to Yeah. And I, I
1: don't think we would have there.
4: been able to get away with it legally, you know.
1: How was how was Disney when you were dropping in characters like W. C. Fields and Clark Gable, and, and you know, obviously they right. would have to track down their uh, the, the owners of their IP and uh, stuff. Were they okay? Yeah, or?
4: Danny, I don't remember any resistance. I don't. I don't remember any pushback. And on that.
3: I think no, that the I don't know that we had Clark Gable specific. We did write the field scene, but I don't remember if we specifically had Clark Gable, or they just happened to, hey, we need some, you know, look-alike movie stars, and they threw him in. No,
4: Joe could have done that, you know, yeah, Joe Yeah, Joe, I think that, that. might have
3: been Joe's bit. But I, I think, um,
4: actually, I think we wrote that stuff. You know, it, here's the thing, it was 1990, and executives and people of our generation knew who these people were. So, right. you know, we had, we all had a lot more relationship to their films than people today or those two writers who are writing rocketeers certainly have. Right. So
3: like when my kids were little and would watch this movie and saw Fields come up to the table, they didn't know who he was. They just thought, who's that funny fat guy? You know, so it was, it didn't register with them, but if it does register, it's pretty cool. And as the years go by, of course, there's more distance on that. And, uh, there was another actress we were going to do in the famous uh, uh, never produced uh, little sequence at the uh, Chinese Theater, the one that was cut. And I'm trying to remember, it was either oh, yeah, like yeah. Ginger Rogers or Betty Davis or something. We were going to have another ringer there who was about to put footsteps in the cement. And that, as I remember, got cut really late in the schedule because they were going to do it and it was a late cut. Somebody wrote a, uh, you know, the novelization of the movie script. Yeah, Peter David. Right. There's yeah. a paper, yeah, paperback that came out at the same time. That scene's in the book. Yep. Because it was too late to take it out of the manuscript.
1: Is is it difficult reading reading a novelization? I mean, did, when when you're looking and saying that's not how we wrote it, or is it, it's another uh, take?
3: Or? I, you know, I looked at it. He followed the script pretty closely. And actually, we kind of briefly, I remember briefly angling for, hey, why don't you just let us write it, because it wouldn't take us that long. But, you know, they probably thought it would take us away from doing other things or whatever. You know, I didn't read it from cover to cover, but I looked at it and read through it, and it seemed, you know, like the the script was pretty descriptive. So um, I don't remember seeing stuff where he had to invent whole scenes or sequences or things like that to fill in stuff yeah did
1: he did he come up with ambrose or did you have ambrose in the script
3: ambrose peabody yes i'm trying to remember if i think that was in the script and i don't know if it was ever in the comics but i remember it came up to a point where we needed a first name for Peavy, and i think we just asked dave what's the first name of Peavy.
1: just a mystery i I was looking through the through the comic books, and I couldn't find any mention of it in the comic books. So I was just yeah. thinking, oh, I've got to come from somewhere. I think somewhere. we had to
3: ask him. I think we had to ask Dave what was his first name. And, no. you know, there's uh, there's there's some other things in there that, uh, you know, that were little homages that, remo- besides the Betty Page thing, like uh, Eddie Valentine, the gangster, his original name in our drafts was Eddie Mars. And oh, if you remember, yeah, Eddie Mars sleep. from The Big Sleep, right. So we thought, oh, that will be fun, we'll put – you know, for whoever gets it, we'll put it in the script. We, it went pretty far before somebody at Disney Legal caught it and said we had to change it. Yeah, And we so, okay. Like uh, and We much. thought we'd, we'd, we'd slip that one in. But we did manage to get in uh, the guy driving the car at the beginning, Chase. Wilmer. Wilmer, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. The Gunsel. The Gunsel. You got right. it. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> so that was one of our other little, you know, homages. If you get it, great. If you don't, you know. Um, wow. Yeah, a bunch of and And Danny, do you remember why uh, Lothar had Twin 45s?
4: I don't know. Was it a shadow on my eyes? A shadow. What was it?
3: That was from the shadow. Twin 45s.
4: Well, and a shadow was really tied to the Rocketeer through Mike Kaluta, who was doing those shadow books at the same time. And I remember Mike Kaluta also inked the Rocketeer, that the Cliff goes Cliff's New York Adventure stuff. He was in, he was inking that as a favor to Dave. They were very very close friends.
1: There were no uh, uh, spirit references. I was thinking there might have been some of those
4: uh, mm. since they had no. both yeah,
1: they, they were they were in you know double header uh, comics together. Mm. Yeah, but yeah,
4: we, not
3: from us. There was. Okay. There is another. I, I was talking to Danny about this yesterday. There is another homage in the film. The very last scene in the film where the kids are running around playing, you know, Rocketeer to the Rescue, Uh, Patsy and her friends are playing and they're running around the plane outside the Bulldog, we base that scene on a piece of Mike Kaluta uh, tribute art that appeared in one of Dave's comics. Oh, And it's in one of the, I'm not sure which issue it is, but it's like Cliff is reading a newspaper or something leaning against a wall and you can see a rocketeer poster behind him and the kids are running around in front of him with the oatmeal box on their back and a tin pan on their head and we put that in the movie that's really a, a nod to mike it,
1: the original uh there was a there was i think it was in one of the scripts and we had talked about this the other day there uh when uh, as they're running around we'd see patsy uh kind of overshadowed by a pork pie hat with uh with Lothar but it was actually another kid was that in the an original draft I'm trying to remember where I'd seen that uh That's earlier. not familiar I'm not sh- it, it was it turns out that it's another it's a kid wearing a pork pie oh, hat Oh okay and um I don't know if that came from uh, now, I, now I don't remember if it was in the novelization but it was from it somewhere somebody had a had a version of that where it, it looked like you know Lothar's come back, and only it's just you know the kid. And then she she chases after Lothar, or the kid is Lothar.
3: Yeah, I can't remember without looking at it who sh- who's chasing who in the scenes. Whether the other kids are dressed as gangsters or whatever, I don't remember in that scene. So that was uh, there's another bit. Uh, I'll test Danny's memory. I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but when uh, the FBI agents go to uh, Bigelow's office and find him dead and uh, they pick up a piece of paper that he left behind where oh, it looks like he left an address and this is what has led Lothar to Cliff and Peavy's house All right, and the numbers are something like 1637 it's 35. 1635 Danny, do you remember why we use those numbers? Yeah, I think I
4: told this story in the last Did when you? I was doing a podcast Yeah, it was our extension at Warner Brothers Right yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I gave him a couple of our little Easter eggs in there, including Mrs. Pie. Last
3: oh yeah, Mr. <laughs> of course, and and you know to this day, uh, Joe Johnston laughs about that one. He says I still can't believe we got away with it. <laughs>
1: uh, wow. Are are Fitch and Wooly from anywhere, or is that uh, from uh, Dave's original?
3: Um, I think he had some FBI guys in the in the comic but I don't think they had specific names. That you know. was just us doing, you know, two old movie-style G-Men, you know, two contrasting guys, and, and the two actors who played them were were really good, you know. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Ed Lauder once where he, he was telling me, he cornered me, and he said, you know, I love the script. I love using all the old slang and the dialogue and the lingo. It's just a lot of fun for me. And uh, we just based them on you know, old G-Men that would be in a 1930s movie.
1: You let them yeah. walk. That's
3: what... Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think Danny told the story how we'd get these notes from, these kind of endless, endless notes from Disney during the many years of writing the script. And it, sometimes it would be more slang, less slang, you know, then three months later, put more period slang in it. We love it, you know. It's, so we tried not to make it too cartoony. So that it would sound, because you you reach a point where if you put too much in, it sounds like a parody. Um, So we wanted it to be fun and feel natural enough without going overboard. And I think it was balanced by characters that were more realistic in the way they acted and reacted, like uh, Terry O'Quinn playing the Howard Hughes character. Um, Because, you know, Bigelow, of course, our great friend, John Polito, who unfortunately passed away last year. Um, he was perfect. I mean, Polito was exactly oh, yeah. the guy in the comic book. And uh, we used John several times in some of our other projects, and he, he was the greatest. I mean, what a, what a character actor. He always, to me, is like a guy from the 1930s. He could have been in one of those movies. And he just chewed that yeah. part up, and it was so great to see his dailies. Always made me laugh.
1: I was trying to figure out. We were talking uh, with Danny last time about the next, the sequel to this would have probably been the New York adventure or some version well, of, of uh, Cliff's New York. Adventure. Yeah, the
3: sequel. Right. What I remember with Dave and Danny and I talking about it was, yes, we want to take him to New York because Dave's idea was we got to see the Rocketeer flying through the great famous architecture of New York. You know, I want to see the, the Rocketeer flying on the Empire State Building and you know, over the Brooklyn Bridge and all that stuff. What the plot was going to be, I really don't remember. It would have probably had some tie-in to what had happened in the previous film. I don't think we would have been stressing pre-war stuff. I'm not sure. I think it might have been just a gangster-type story. I really don't remember. But because whatever elements ended up going into the Cliffs New York Adventure comic... I don't think it would have been similar to what we would have done in a movie. Well, first of all, Lothar was still around, so you know, the continuity would, would have been messed yeah. up. But I don't think we would have done you know, the flashback story to Cliff as a young man in the circus. I love that story, by the way. I, I think there are some great ideas in there. Yeah. But I don't think that would have been the movie.
1: You wouldn't have gone to Atlantic City or any of that.
3: Well, maybe we would have, would have done that. Yeah. You know, That would have been cool.
1: Yeah, you, um, you would have beat Boardwalk Empire by a decade at least.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't remember there being anything, you know, when we made our deal or, or or talked about making the sequels where we had written up, like, you know, three or four paragraphs summarizing what that second film would be.
4: No, you know, we never got yeah. that far. That's my recollection.
3: And the third one, that. who the hell knows, but the third one, I think, like Danny might have mentioned, I'm sure the third one, we would have taken him into the thick of... The war.
1: Yeah, it would have been Captain America, basically. I mean, it would have been. Yeah, yeah, it would have
3: been Captain America, which was, you know, when I saw Captain America, the, the first one that um, that Joe directed, I, I, it was right before. I think they had just finished it because he showed a, a sequence from it or a trailer from it when we had the Rocketeer twentieth anniversary screening. So it was right before the release of the film. And when I saw the movie, I said, you know, this is it. Kind of to me, feels like a sort of. Spiritual brother, let's say, to the Rocketeer, just in the tone. Yeah, and maybe wish that he had done another one.
1: Yeah, I think it, w- it probably would have looked like all the uh, uh, the the war propaganda posters at the end of the at the end of Captain America. I'm picturing that's how the that's how oh, the yeah. whole movie would have been.
2: And yeah, that would have been the perfect sensibility for it. So, uh, Paul and Danny, I I don't want this to come across as a as a as a cruel question and I, I mean i so I, okay well then
3: <laughs> hey cruelty is uh you
2: know our state of say. mind we
0: got
3: yeah. we can deal with um
2: it. but if uh we, we've all, we've we've touched on the possibility of a sequel and and there's been this some announcement of the rocketeers and things out there now right. but if you guys were going to write a sequel now uh, and set it, say, uh-huh. you know, call it thirty years after, after the original. Do you have All any right.
3: idea what what
2: that story might look like?
4: I have my idea. What do you think, Danny? Well, uh, well, I would say something a little bit different. Is that, and I, maybe I mentioned this last time. Is Paul and I wrote a, a graphic novel, called yes. Red Menace? Huge fan, huge fan one. over here. Oh, thank you, that, that, thank you, thanks. That, that, that for us, was the spiritual sequel to The Rocketeer. Because if you remember, by the end, the kid can fly. And it was Los Angeles. It was, uh, you know, 15 years later, 12, 13 years later. And the tonally, we were doing the same things. You know, we, we were, it was very, um, it mined the period. Even the Birdman of oh, Alcatraz right. was a character in it, if you recall. And for us, I always felt that that was the spiritual sequel to the Rocketeer. Um, if we were going to do it, a sequel, like if like if they had come to us a few years ago, which of course never happens, if they had come to us and said um, we wanted to do another one, the first thing we would have said, well, how old is Bill, right? And because it's 25 years since then, can we use Bill? Do we have to hand it off to a younger rocketeer or do we play a last hurrah story? Because we kind of like those. As a matter of fact, I probably mentioned to you guys that our our most recent feature script is about uh, Vietnam veterans in their 60s who go back into Cambodia. Um, That's sort of a treasure Sierra Madre thing. Um, So we like last hurrah stories. But, you know, a lot of it, like those writers told you, Disney would have had some ideas about what where they would want to go or not want to go. We probably would have had to pitch three to five different versions. But, you know, one thing about us is we always like verisimilitude. So we would have tried to say, well, can we get Bill? Can we get Jennifer? Can we, you know, how many of the people can we, how close can we make it to that 25 years later? And then, you know, Paul and I did talk about this, actually. Now my brain is sort of rolling around to it. And I'm sure we would have done a Cold War thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could have done Bay of Pigs. You could have done, you know, Cuban Missile It would have been late thing. 50s because by the 60s,
4: oh, the 50, yeah. it started to not feel, you know, the language changed a lot. and It yeah. started to, certainly, certainly, we wouldn't have done anything post-1963, post the Cultural Revolution So of the 60s. We would have wanted to stay in the... Like Eisenhower sort of land. G, or, the, or, yeah, the gee whiz feeling of the period. The other thing is Dave Stevens' next project that he wanted to do was he wanted to do a thing in the 50s about uh, hot rods and strippers and crime in 50s L.A. And um, I definitely remember him talking to us about that, sort of more getting into, because, you know, the Betty Page era really was like the 50s. Yeah. Dave was fascinated with that. And, and I remember seeing Ed Wood and thinking, well, that was kind of the closest thing that anybody ever got to what, what Dave wanted to do. I remember thinking that when I saw it. Because remember, Dave had a relationship to that sort of his first wife, right. was Rink Stevens. A, you know, yeah. Being, no, I I yeah. think
3: the fifties would have been a great era, the mid fifties, and or even you know towards the end. But I would have kept it in the fifties. I think you know I agree with Danny. It would have been great to keep Bill and, and Jennifer present in the movie, um, and maybe the story is about it's either a last or off story, or maybe he. At some point in the film, you know, they've got a kid or he's got a nephew or there's a neighbor kid, whatever, and you see it getting handed off, you know. Um, or maybe something like that might might have been fun. But, you know, the, the way they moved the Indiana Jones character around, I mean, the last film was not my favorite in the series, but certainly showed that you could move the character into different decades and keep him vital and keeping the same character.
1: Well, I mean, we and, got Luke Skywalker. Well, right.
3: You got Luke Skywalker. A, si- exactly. a
1: silent Billy Campbell handing off uh, <laughs> yes, handing <laughs> the, off off the rocket pack. pack.
3: Yeah. You oh. know, I mean, I, I certainly, even if it had turned out to be, let's make this a story about, you know... Cliffs, a strange son finds the uh, rocket pack in the garage and goes off and uses it in some kind of adventure, or whatever. And you make it a father and son story, even something like that. Yeah. You know, you, it, there's any number of ways you could have gone, but um, I don't really know much about whatever this new movie is, other than I've heard that it's set during the Second World War and the Rocketeer has disappeared no, no, no. no it's fifth, totally no. different now
4: no 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 it's 50s it, it's no,
3: 50s okay it, so it's, it's not 20s. even wartime anymore okay then i have no idea then I, mean, yeah. I have no idea what they're doing
4: no 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 remember it's about an it's about an african-american female that's what they said in the announcement no, a is, years ago. I, mean, I read the same stuff everybody else did the biggest mystery to me was how why those two athletes were. oh blake them griffin them. and yeah i mean i'm, I'm a fan i'm a and Ryan Khalil, I mean, I'm a
2: fan, but... I, I, See, I, I thought even when they were talking about the really the fun. young female star that they were still saying something like six years after the first film, which would put us late World War II.
4: I don't know either. Yeah, I don't know, guys, no. but you know what? It's not... I,
1: let me, let, let, me quote, let, let me quote the, uh, I'll, I'll quote the uh, Hollywood Reporter. The new, the new take keeps the story in a period setting and offers a fresh view of the characters. Set six years after the original Rocketeer and after Secord has vanished while fighting the Nazis, an unlikely new hero emerges, a young African-American female pilot who takes up the mantle of the Rocketeer in an attempt to stop an ambitious and corrupt rocket scientist from stealing jetpack technology in what could prove to be a turning point in the Cold War.
0: Well, the
2: Cold War hadn't really started in 1944,
4: so I wonder... I think that, uh, going back to your your point, it is kind of a crappy question. Let's... let's, (laughs) (laughs) let's, let's, I I feel like an idiot... I think cruel was the word. (laughs) I think I feel like an idiot sitting here musing about what they might (laughs) be doing, right? It's just kind of like, it's just a little frustrating. Well, you know, our
3: our, uh, contract, because when I first heard about this, I said... I'm pretty sure we don't have any rights because it wasn't our original, you know, whatever. But I looked at, I found our old contract and we were locked in for something like five or six years after the first film. So obviously by now they had no obligation to us. But I really do feel that even our participation aside, I feel like for the people who are really the fans of this movie, and I think that includes young kids. Who grew up watching this film? Because so many times Danny and I have have met people that, you know, the the first time they saw the movie was when they were kids and watched it on video with their parents, you know, right. and to at least have some physical connection to the original film, whether it's including some of the stars like Bill or whoever, um, I would I would do that just for the fans because I think there's a lot of Love out there for this movie, uh, you know, that just generated over time, and I, you know, I, I can't try and second guess the Disney executives at this point, but I hope that they don't miscalculate this to the point where they lose what it is that people love about the original film. That's all. Here, here, yeah. Well,
2: and uh, and Danny, for the uh, for the record, I, I knew it was going to be a cruel question, but it wasn't meant to be. Uh, Number one, no offense intended. Of course. I know that. Number two, <laughs> number two, it was, it was, uh, it's, it's wishful thinking on my part. Like, if, even if there were no talk of any other sequel at all, it's just if you guys could wave your magic wand, you know, what story would you guys tell? And, oh, I, uh, I'm sure so that was the, that was the happy part of the question.
4: Yeah. yeah no, no, I don't want. Don't don't get me wrong. It's just it's just sitting here musing <laughs> about what somebody else might be doing with the property. It's just just right. So unpleasant. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know me. I mean, you know me by now. I'm not kidding around. It's like you know, (laughs) they don't. They're doing the Flash series without us. They're going to do a Rocketeer thing without us. And we are better writers now than we were then. I mean, that's absolutely true. So it's just it's just a part of Hollywood that uh, isn't so much fun for those of us of a certain age.
3: Well, I do take comfort and pride and salve my wounds of cruelty (laughs) with. (laughs) <laughs> the idea that, you know, we didn't we didn't create the Rocketeer. We didn't create the Flash. But we got to do our versions, and those will always be there. And even though the new Flash show, you know, we know Andrew Kreisberg. We've talked to him many times, and, you know, we were going to – he told us several times, you know, oh, I want to have you guys do an episode of the script. They've had – or episode of the show, they've had – people who were on our version of the show, they've had Mark guest star. Obviously, there's a huge influence stylistically from our show in that version. And even that, to me, is kind of weirdly satisfying, even though I feel like we got weirdly kind of put on the other side of it. That's our version. And just like there's going to be another three versions of The Flash with all these various feature films and there's been you know, 20 versions of Superman or whatever, you do your version and that's yours and nobody can take that away from you. So I'm okay with that. And we did get to do the last set of comics on the Rocketeer with Dave. And that's all there are. And Dave Stevens literally taught me and Danny how to write a a comic book script. And I'll tell you something, it was way harder (laughs) than we ever thought it was going to be. It's an extremely hard format. But he taught us how to do it, so I'm grateful to him for that as well because we took what we learned from him and were able to write other comics from that.
1: What, what do you love most about the Rocketeer from a writing standpoint? What, what is it in the Rocketeer universe that, that captures you, that, that you're there because of this?
0: Well,
4: I'll say, look, I think there's three parts to it that were mine. One is superhero. I would say that's not the inspiration for us, for me, for me. Um, the other is aviation, which um, really appreciated, You know Dave and Kaluda were huge aviation fans like you guys. But And the third one really, and this was the one for me, was movies of the 1930s. That was the access point. That was the pleasure, that was the passion, was being able to um, express and participate in our own appreciation for the films we grew up on watching on television in the middle of the afternoon. And, I, and, you know, I still look at those films as comfort food. If I'm ever feeling down or something, I'll go back and put in a Bogart movie, a Jimmy Stewart movie, or my favorite Gary Cooper movie. And just seeing it in black and white, it takes me back to the kind of pleasure I derived from it as a kid watching it on TV. And that was my access point, and that's what I love most about working with the Rocketeer. And again, I said to you guys last time, when I've seen the film, and Zone Troopers is similar in this way, I don't know if anybody would ever let us get away with that direct kind of period dialogue again you know, that we got away with there. And, and that's kind of unique about it, right? You even mentioned you know a couple of lines of dialogue in this conversation. But my access point and sort of the real inspiration and, and the stuff that's most fun for me, and I have a strange feeling Paul's going to say the same thing, was the films that we grew up with those films of the of the 19
3: Yeah it's that's absolutely true one of the things i love about the movie is because i grew up reading superhero comics and i always liked heroes that had human foibles you know i love superman but i love the superman stories the most where he was vulnerable somehow you know and the idea, one thing that really works, and it's in, it's, it's in Dave's comic, but one thing that I really like about what happens to the character of the rocketeer of Cliff, the arc of his character, to use the old you know familiar term, is that Cliff starts out kind of a brash, selfish guy. He doesn't want to give this thing up. And Peavy's like his Jiminy Cricket, right? Peavy keeps saying, "Cliff, we got to turn this thing in. We got to. It's not right. It's stolen." But Peavy gets dragged into it too until they're over their heads. But Cliff's whole idea is, "Hey, this thing. I know it's not ours, but we're going to use it to make some money and get ourselves out of Hock." And in the course of the story, it's very simple. He has to realize what's the most important thing to him, and that's Jenny. And that's something that, uh, the through line of that character, that's something that I always really liked. It's a very classic through. And he doesn't start out as, uh, he's, you know, he's got charm, but uh, some of the things he does are not entirely likable at the beginning, his attitude.
4: Yeah. yeah, the arc was, it was very intentional that he starts out selfish and learns to be a hero through uh, helping his friends. And I and I think I seem to remember that, and we haven't talked about him in this conversation, I probably did in the others, but you know, Bill Deere, the original director, had a lot of influence on, this, on the Rocketeer as well, and I remember him saying that to us while we were writing, that, that theme that, that I just said, as well as, I know Bill wrote that line about... Uh, oh yeah, that's acting, he,
3: absolutely acting acting he absolutely did, he absolutely wrote that line, yeah. That it was a great line
4: yeah, and he he you know he um he actually showed up at the twentieth anniversary thing too, and he wasn't on the panel or anything. but Paul and I sort of dragged him backstage and and had him hang out with everybody because he was an influence, a creative influence into the Rocketeer film as well, who got, you know, I have no idea why he was replaced as a director. I don't remember. What I do remember was they were excited about Joe Johnston because of Honey, I Shrink the Kids was a big hit. But I don't remember, like, Bill having problems with them. But you'd have to ask him because I did. Did you ever try to get him for a Rocketeer Minute, Bill Deere? Uh,
1: I tried reaching out. I never got a response. Mm. But, uh, Bill, if you're out there listening, please, you know. <laughs> we'll do bonus episodes. To... We're happy yes. to do we will. it.
4: He spent years in development with us on the on the yeah. project. And I remember yeah. being up yeah, at we his did. house many, many times. Uh, I we'll can tell you. I,
3: I mean, Danny... Your memory may be different than mine, but I there's a couple of things that I remember that came from Bill besides that line. And I I'm I remember Bill saying we were talking about, you know, the big second act action scene. And we always knew we wanted to go to a nightclub in the movie because one of the things that I always love about old movies especially film noir or whatever it is, a Bogart movie, is when they go to these nightclubs in these 30s and 40s movies because they're always spectacular, right? And I think it was Bill's idea who said, we've got to have a scene where we trap him inside and he's got to fly around an interior and all the havoc that ensues. And he said, like, a fly in a bottle. And that line is actually in the script. Somebody says we'll trap him like a fly in the bottle, and that's my memory. Is that the inspiration for that scene actually came from Bill? Um, yeah, and uh, I, well, I I, get, I, I, I remember him himself. saying we gotta. I, <laughs>
4: no, no, no. I, he did. Sorry. I remember him I'm saying sure we got to get him trapped a lot. inside. He, did. he
0: contributed And then
3: all you know the various gags and bits with the nets and all the stuff. And as Danny, I know, explained to you, there were a million other bits in there, and I think somebody because I listened to some of your other podcasts, I think somebody had a question about, it might have been one of you guys, Jim, Jim or Hal, asked about, well, whatever happened to the mermaid in Eddie's office, right? Well, in the original script, they, yeah. this is one of the things that was cut, that fish tank was supposed to get a bullet in it, and all the water pours out, and she comes flying, in a wall of water down the steps, and, you know, it was, all, it was all a big stunt.
4: Yeah, that was all planned. All that got mm. cut when they when they came in and cut the schedule down on Joe, that I remember, and I probably talked about this before the amount of days shooting in the club. Um, as I recall, uh, they thought he was going over budget and they said, we're cutting like half the days out of the nightclub. And I remember him being furious, uh, Joe Johnston. And there was, so a lot of those bits had to get cut in simplifying that scene. And frankly, I wish they hadn't done that. (laughs) I, I really wish that, um, that, because that scene in the script, if you ever look at the script, was, uh, was really one of my favorite action scenes that we've ever written. And it's it still cut, pretty big,
3: but it was more elaborate.
4: Yeah. Remember uh, was, the palm tree, he may turn into a battering ram and all that. I yeah. mean, you know, there was great stuff.
1: I w- I was watching all through the night the other day and it was w- and I was thinking that Gloves Donahue the, the Humphrey Bogart character in that could easily have been Eddie Valentine and I was just thinking <laughs> if you had only had Eddie Valentine's mother there telling you. <laughs> Uh but uh, anyway but such was not the case. Uh, but you know <laughs> good on its own it it just I it, I was just amazed at how much the whole Gloves Donahue gang fighting the Nazis it, it was it was almost parallel of uh you know getting out there and doing the right thing even though he's busy running another operation well you know that was always part of
3: it was always part of the story that at the end the gangsters were gonna turn on sinclair because eddie hated his guts anyway and we're gonna find an opportunity to turn on sinclair and join up with the g-men at the end i mean that was always part of the plan you know um but there were different versions where i think we even might have had a an early version where Eddie didn't make it to the end of the movie. I don't remember. We had a bunch of other Eddie scenes that were eventually cut out. And I think Danny talked about how the original inspiration for Eddie actor-wise was, was someone like Joe Pesci, you know, a firecracker, right? And what we were going for was this contrast of characters. Was Eddie as this guy who had come up from the streets. And even though he's wealthy and even though he's running this huge crime empire, what he would never be able to have is the kind of polish that a guy like uh, Sinclair has. And that, to me, was the abrasion between these two characters. And um, uh, that got lost somehow. I mean, Sorvino's a great actor, don't get me wrong. But I do, I do think that casting him in that part kind of threw that balance off a bit. And I wish that Eddie had been a, a more street type character because I think the contrast would have been funnier between the two. You know, Eddie to me was Cagney, was a Cagney character who was going to explode at any second, and yeah, to, yeah. to contrast against the kind of cool, reserved um, uh, facade that uh, and the needling facade that that Sinclair. Uh, pushes against him so that that was a little bit of a disappointment in the interpretation and I'm sure Danny told you you told them the story about when we had to go down on the set and mediate that scene right?
4: I don't know if I did
1: didn't hear you said you said that you had there was some some problem with it and who was who was gonna right. talk about well, what but yeah. we never got to who, the who's and the no, what no
4: it was who's who's they got into this whole actor hell about whose scene it was and we were kind of like hey you guys are here to we didn't say this <laughs> but to each other it was well, they're here to serve the story. It's not the story to serve them. And we literally were there all night, one night, writing and listening to both of them. And and didn't I tell the story about how Servino said if he comes into my office, I'd shoot him? And then <laughs> we were like, well, if you shoot him, we don't have no. to it was, it was, <laughs> uh, We did No! That would have been an abrupt a, ending. This, no, this was a really – this was our our biggest – one of our largest sort of getting in the middle of actor stuff in our careers where it's like, what right. planet did we just land on? Because the scene made sense to us, but between those two guys, it felt to us like who's the power in the scene? And I remember oh,
1: so, so that so that number three jerk line when he's throwing the cigar, that's heartfelt. <laughs> oh
4: yeah. Yes. Okay. And and <laughs> we we were we were there and we were rewriting the scene and we didn't know what we were doing because it's like, okay, he says he's not powerful, and, all right, so we made Servino more powerful. What I remember is rewriting a scene, going back to Warner Brothers, because we had to do our show, and then like the next morning getting a call saying, okay, now Dalton doesn't like it.
0: <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> no, it's true. He, it's
4: true. Really, and I was, I, never, I'll never forget this, because it was like, this is madness to us, because somehow it got, maybe whatever, they were tired or they were overly emotional, I don't know what was going on but this kind of stuff happens on film sets and, we, and I wasn't directing and Paul wasn't, and we were just sort of coming in and out and other people might have more insight into this, but our writer's point of view was, this is nuts. I mean, it's like, it's not about whose scene is it, you know? It's about the story and serving the story to propel it forward. And they got all caught up in who, which character was more powerful, which to us right. was madness. I'm telling it, that's what your recollection is, right? Paul? Yeah,
3: exactly. Well, because the... In terms of the plot and the, the forward movement of the situations in the plot, this scene is about Sinclair going into Eddie's office and telling him, you know, you got to find this rocket pack, and uh, uh, if you don't, I'm going to shut you down. And you know who the and, and it's really about you've got to find the rocket. You've got you waking up. He's in there to chastise Eddie. And Eddie says, yeah, I can make a couple of phone calls And this is, you know, pretty much from the original script He says, yeah, you know, I can make a couple of phone calls myself And he says You know, the line, one of my favorite lines in the script He says, and who are they going to believe? You are the number three box office star in America And he goes out And the whole idea is that, yes At that moment, Sinclair has the upper hand He has to Or the story can't move forward He's got Eddie by the nuts In that scene But Sinclair, uh know, and so Tim was actually right from a dramatic standpoint that it needed to be Sinclair's scene. He had to have the last word and walk out with the power in his hand, which is also a trigger for what happens later in the story. Because, you know, 10 minutes later, Eddie's whole uh, club gets shot. You know, um, it's just it's all part of the careful building that we tried to do. Between those two characters and the tension between them, so being called into the set in the middle of the night to try and fix this thing, we were like, "Well, we don't even understand what the problem is." <laughs> dramatically,
1: you're, so, you're supposed to be at odds; you don't have to be at odds in real and life. And dramatically,
3: just... one of the characters has the upper hand here. You can't both have the upper hand, or there's no scene. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. But you know, and Sorvino of, you know, added some great biz. that I honestly that I thought were very funny. Is like another little bit that I really love is when. After they lose the the rocket, and when Peavy and Cliff do the uh, jet propelled truck bit, and they get yeah. away, and one of his goons is standing there eating a piece of uh, a bag of popcorn, and Eddie just reaches over and slaps it out of his hand. That was very thirties, and that that was a great yeah. bit. That really made me laugh.
1: Get in the car. That whole yeah. <laughs> um, who 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 came up with the "Go Get 'Em, Kid" uh, tagline at the at the end of uh, Eddie's appearance? Do you know
3: <sighs> I don't know from? if that was done on the set or in the, it was probably in the script i don't remember
1: mm.
4: i don't know it's a little cheesy i don't think i think it worked the it's way perfectly they did perfect. yeah, it's perfectly yeah. Cheesy. no I, I don't remember writing that they um, might have just done it on the set yeah i don't remember writing that they might have just done that yeah. on the set. but you know it's been a long time so <laughs> I, don't, I can't i don't know line by line i mean some of the things i remember and i think i think another thing that that I think Bill contributed this also was the I like it. I think that's that a, was Bill a Bill Deere. Deer that was Bill Deere. I think that, Absolutely. Was, that was Bill also.
3: That's, that's a good recall. Yeah. That was Bill's bit on the. Because, you know, one thing that we should tell you guys is the first third of the movie, from the opening where Wilmer and his guy are escaping with the rocket pack through Cliff being shot down over the airfield and the explosion on the field and the rescue of Malcolm. That first section of the movie probably changed the least over all the drafts. And, uh, yeah, well, and it's,
1: so it's part yeah, of the original, that's in the yeah, comic. Yeah, those yeah. are the two
3: big sequences that are literally from, you know, the opening and the rescue of Malcolm are almost, you know, taken directly from the comic. But that whole first section um, stayed the same. That had the least changes of anything else from the rest of the script, that first 40 pages, whatever it was. And, did you, uh, did you
1: add anything significant once production started? Were there any rewrites into the? I mean, other than the, you know, the scene between Eddie and uh, uh, and Neville.
4: Yeah, it was mostly reductive as it usually is. And once production starts, I don't remember particularly adding anything. Usually, you're they have to cut something, and you're yeah working your way around that. that that's that's what I recall. I can re- I do remember something that's not in the movie, like like talking about the bill Deere version there was a whole sequence this part i remember that was at the nightclub and the nightclub was like on the santa monica pier or something Hmm. and there was like a nazi submarine and the this is the other thing i remember was it it, you go into the nightclub and it says family
0: and then it was like
4: it was like No, it was like, but it was really a gathering of all these mobs. And it was like, we welcome the five families, the family from Kansas City, the family from (laughs) Cleveland, the family, you know, it was like, there was, uh, there were versions of this, you know, because Paul and I, uh, six years of development, we did a lot of versions of this movie, especially when we had director changes and stuff. So, but I, I, I certainly remember there was a draft fully written with that whole, all the mobsters are gathered at the, uh, Right. At the nightclub, which was and by was, the ocean. And, and there, there was, was a, a Nazi, Nazi submarine, submarine that yes. was,
3: you know, basically the blimp that was going to take Sinclair and the rocket away. And there was also a version that, one of the versions that we did with Bill that involved, God, what was that guy's name? Ernst? Do you remember Ernst, Danny?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Ernst was,
3: you thought he was Sinclair's like valet, or assistant or something, and Ernst turns out to be like a Nazi test pilot, and there was some, there was some German experimental plane that shows up. Oh,
1: like the Watson in the... the
3: Yeah, exactly, I think it was inspired by that, and there's a chase between the Rocketeer and that plane where Ernst is trying to shoot down the Rocketeer and... I don't remember if that led directly to the submarine thing at the end, the U-boat chase, or whether those were two separate versions. But I remember the experimental aircraft. Yeah, but we wrote all of these. Yeah, these were all like, written we out. These
4: were not just – these were all completely scripted, these these versions. There was a lot of development yeah, you, on this You, thing. you, you, you had I a series here that you could <laughs> Yeah, well – you know, it's part of script yeah. development and I think at being at the end of the Rocketeer minute here it's and you got us it's kind of fun to talk about all the other versions that oh. never happened. It's kind of I think right, it's appropriate. Right. I, I, mean,
1: I don't know I don't know what the licensing would be like, but if you ever came out with a Rocketeer compendium put me down on the first, uh, I, I, I yeah, can see no having kidding. a giant, you know, here's version A and version B of the script that would be amazing to see.
3: Well, I think we have some of the earlier versions of the script, you know heart and yeah,
4: we do The one we definitely have i talked to you about before is with the ending with all the oh, yeah. uh, yes the air to the air to ground battle yeah. that it wasn't oh. just the Zeppelin. it oh, yeah. was all the, the, Mojave and Desert all the planes. Ending. and the and it was all the and the gangsters were moving in cars on the ground just that that one that was always my favorite ending, which probably I don't remember why it was chucked it could have been taste, it could have been budget, you know things like that but that one, um, if, if if I was ever going to show anybody what I thought our best written version of the script... God, what I wouldn't give to have air. seen
2: that. All those airplanes again.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well,
3: that was the other thing that was... Yeah, well,
4: rem- remember that was, there were...
3: Dave yeah. and Mike, yeah. the big aviation... And guys. what was so cool about the movie was that they had all those planes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they had a big search for a GB replica. It was very, you know, and... Um, I mean, of course, there was some CG in there, but there was a ton of, you know, all of the air race stuff, real planes. I mean, that was, you'd never do that for real now. You know, you'd do it in like Dunkirk. You'd have some, you know, dummy bodies and the rest of it would be CG, you know. But it was, that was extraordinary to see the detail. And, and I, you know, I don't know if, if Danny talked about at all about, you know, just the visual look and design of the film. But, you know, the stuff that Jim Bissell did is extraordinary. In recreating, I mean, the recreation of that kind of golden, nostalgic California 1930s with a little bit of grit was fantastic.
2: Well, you know, that's one of the funniest things about it because when I watch uh, a movie, I'm trying to think of an example. The best one I've got is Pretty Dated, but I think of something like The Great Waldo Pepper, uh, you know, Uh as an aviation guy in particular, one of my very, very favorite films. But when I watch that now to me it's uh you know it feels like two levels of a period picture it's you know it's set in the 20s but it's still a very 70s movie there's still a I lot of that that, that sort of yeah. pervades it but i have to to say i'm not just blowing smoke here uh but the rocketeer never once has ever felt like a 90s movie to me when i watch the rocketeer it's uh it it's just a movie from 1938 it just happens to have better color <laughs> than than most of them <laughs> Uh, everything about that rings, you know, rings true, start to finish. And I don't. I, I wish I could articulate exactly, exactly yeah, it what did, it, it is.
1: It doesn't throw you out of time. It's like when you're watching, right. a, you know, it's like when you're watching a '70s movie about the '30s, and everybody's got shaggy hair. Yeah, like, exactly. Well, That's the all
3: that the was, pepper kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was very meticulous in on all levels. You know, hair, makeup. Uh, uh, It was Marilyn Vance did wardrobe, right? Right. Marilyn Vance was a wardrobe. Yeah. And, you know, just all those things, they were very careful. And, you know, uh, I think Bill probably told you, Bill Campbell told you the story of his audition where he he came in with the haircut. Yes. Yeah. You know, because (laughs) it's, you're right about the hair. Because I'll see movies from the 70s or the 60s, you know, like Dr. Zhivago, right? I love David Lean, so does Danny. Everybody in the movie looks great, but Julie Christie's got 60s hair and makeup. And it just throws <laughs> me right off, you know? It's yeah. like, what the hell? Commit! <laughs> you know? Oh, God,
2: amen to that.
3: Yeah, so... Or it's like you see, you know, some of these great John Ford movies, uh, these westerns, and, you know, the females have got, you know, way too much makeup on, and John Wayne looks like a cowboy full of dust, and everybody else looks wrong, you know? Yeah. And but But I think the details... They carried him through 100. percent There's no um, anachronistic dialogue. We were really careful with that. Um, everything, it,
1: it, it, all the all the sets, the feel of the, di- you know, you go on the Bulldog Diner and you can picture. You know, you, you don't have to say, okay, that's a set. It's it, it looks like you're really back there.
3: Well, yeah, but also, you know, they were they were canny enough to build it so it doesn't look like it was built yesterday.
1: You know, yeah.
3: I mean, it's and the costumes were beautiful. It was great.
4: It was also. A- it was also right. an exterior interior set. It wasn't the out the exterior was just out at Indian Dunes, and the interior was on a stage. They did the whole yep. thing out at Indian Dunes, as I recall. That it was an exterior interior set, so he could shoot out the door and have you know not just a backdrop out there and, and stage lighting. I, I believe it was, as I recall, the whole set was was out at uh, Indian Dunes. So about what you're saying, I think that the credit goes to. Dave Stevens, who and Joe Johnston, really for keeping Dave Stevens involved and appreciating his art and letting him be part of the art department of the movie. I think I think that has something to do with it, and the other part has to do with them letting us keep our dialogue and appreciating it and letting it be a movie where they talk like a 1930s movie, and I think that that's why it feels like a brightly colored, you know, 1930s movie shot with 1990s cinematography and effects is that Joe Johnston, and I don't know if he had to fight for it or not because we weren't close enough to it, but having Dave as part of the art department made a humongous difference and then not having somebody go through the script and rewrite all our dialogue and turn it into contemporary. I'll be shocked if that Rocketeer script is has period dialogue. I'll be shocked.
1: Well, we can hope.
4: <laughs> yeah, you can hope. Well, who knows? You know, it's... Wow. it's. Uh, who knows? Danny's
3: writing that you can't overstate Dave Stevens' influence on the film. And he was there every minute. I mean, it was a labor of love for him. Um, And he felt the pain, he felt the joy, he felt the hard work, and um, I think ultimately, you know, he was pretty happy with what we ended up with. And I remember one time Danny and I were talking about the movie, and you know, if you're a screenwriter and you've done this a million times, and if you can look at a film and say, "You know what that's about seventy seventy five percent of what we wrote and intended, that's pretty damn good that that's that's a that's a high percentage, and that's how I look at the movie. There's moments where I go, ah, you know I wish this scene had been a little more this or a little less that, but that's also kind of ebbed a bit over time you know like i, I there's a lot of things when it was fresher. You know, when I saw the movie in 1992 or 1991, it was different than when I watch it now because I forget a lot about those things and just enjoy it and, um, for what it is and for what we were able to get in there, you know.
1: Yeah, Has forgetting about like the paperwork and the headaches of production made it made it more enjoyable? Uh, I mean, yeah, amazing. I
3: mean, you know, it's, it's like Danny said, you would not believe and I think we saved some of them. Never in my life have I ever had more notes about a script. In well, we were in development, what five years? You know, I mean, the the notes were like unending. You thought they'd never. When are we ever going to be done? You know. <laughs> and um, so that was tough. And when you look, but uh, you know, I don't think about that now. I just think about how happy I, how happy I was when they greenlit the movie. And oh my God, we're actually going to make this thing.
4: You know. Oh. I'm actually, honestly, I, maybe I said this last time, I'm happier about it now than ever because it now is more appreciated than it ever was. And it's considered, I mean, you guys have that nice thing you say at the beginning of the, your podcast, The Greatest Adventure. But I think, I, know, I, I really feel like of that era, of the sort of Eisner-Katzenberg era at Disney, for live action films, it's, it's one of the most beloved of the era. If not the most beloved, and and the fact that they're thinking about making a sequel now, 25 years later, it it's a legacy film. And I every time I go to did I tell you this? Every time I go to Disneyland, I wear a Rocketeer T-shirt, and I tell people I'm with jokingly. It's like it's like because I love people saying I love that movie, and I can say I wrote it, and then we can have a conversation. I I have no shame about that. And I I took a bunch of, um, I was training a bunch of uh, producers from China, uh, game producers, this summer. And we took like 25 of them there. And with a translator, I told the story. And I was wearing one of the newer Rocketeer t-shirts because they made some for the 25th anniversary. And as soon as we got to the first security guard where you bag check at Disneyland... They said, oh, I love that movie. And I said, oh, I wrote that movie. They said, oh, my God. And the, all these Chinese, and the <laughs> translators going, blah, 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 blah. And they're all breaking up. And I said, okay, that's one. Let's see how many we can get throughout the day. So I, I, I honestly, my kids laugh about it, but I take great pleasure. I always wear a Rocketeer t-shirt when I go to Disneyland uh, because I have so much fun with yeah, it, the it. recognition that the film now has. And it was, it was a dream of ours, to, for Paul and I, career goal, to have a Disney film, because we were big Disney fans. And that is like one that I can check that box and say, we did that. And it's not, you know, one of those other films that may have been a lot more popular, made a lot more money of the era of those live action films. This one has legs and has lived on. And, and all of that is, I mean, I have a the case on my my <laughs> iPhone right now is a Rocketeer <laughs> case. Because I got it this summer. At uh, Disney World, um, you can still get them in the place where they, you know, they print up. They have all these Disney phone cases. I, I, I think. They have a yep. one. I, got to I think
1: Hal is ordering one right well. well. well, now. Can't talk. Typing. You, you know
4: what else is? You know what else is funny is there's a
3: lot. I was, you know, I was on the internet a couple days ago. I, I was just looking up, you know, Rocketeer T-shirts because to see there's so much stuff out there that. Uh, I don't think it's licensed. I don't know, but there's a million really cool T-shirts out there that are not Disney issued, but that are just like fan-created logos and and. Well, yeah, pictures
4: I mean, I told you guys posters. probably. That I mean, in it's April, the end of April, I went beautiful to a gallery stuff. showing of tribute art, and you could buy them. And I bought right. uh, one particular one for both Paul and I that it, it, the artist had done it in sort of a almost a Rocky and Bullwinkle style of like early 60s, late 50s art style of a Rocketeer poster. And it says, it's all part of the show. I mean, so the fact that there's so much legacy around it is awesome. And I may have told you before that when I was working, I was working at Imagineering a few years ago on on some Star Wars land stuff and this other project where I was working in the park. And they would always introduce me to everyone. Well, he wrote the Rocketeer. He wrote the Rocketeer. And it was it was uh, among the Imagineers, it's, it's a well-known film too. So all of that stuff is incredibly satisfying and a gift to our careers. Um, that I really feel that way.
1: Yeah. I, I, there are, Man. there are people walking around. We, we get a lot of people send us their fan art and things like that. Uh, and, uh, we have, I Last week we got somebody has a has a sleeve of wow. a tattoo on their arm of, of the rocketeer, wow. you know, holding his arm out and uh, go get him, kid. As a, uh, I as had a uh,
3: I had a student <laughs> and, in one of my screenwriting classes at USC uh, last semester who showed me a picture of her brother's arm, and he had a oh, rocketeer really? flying rocketeer on his arm. Yeah. And so I said, "Oh, I'll give you some swag." You know, I gave her a signed comic or something to give to her brother, and he was pretty excited. I said, "That's I nuts! I've never too. seen a Rocketeer tattoo. That's pretty. That's pretty out there." Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Go wow. Check, check our Twitter feed because there's there's people sending. I'm sure after yeah. this episode we'll have a lot more. But yeah, it's a. I mean, it's just that people want to keep be a part of this whole thing, and uh, I'm, we we have more than one. Uh, uh, listener out there who build uh, things like helmets, oh and, sure, uh, and jet packs, and things. you see
4: some of that stuff on, um, you know, Etsy and There's
3: things like that. There's a guy building a motorcycle. That's I mean,
4: incredible.
0: Seen that yeah. One? Oh no, yeah.
4: Yeah, that's a rocketeer motorcycle. Oh, he's no. an artist. We met him at a con last Comic Con no. summer no. or a year and a half ago. He's going
3: to drive it cross country on a I've tour. I got postcard.
4: <laughs> he gave. Him, he has postcards, six different postcards that are hand drawn art of his motorcycle in different Rocketeer scenes and stuff. It's-
3: yeah, if we have the uh, – oh, oh, cool. I'm sure he has a
4: website. We'll
1: find okay, the we'll, link and send we'll, it we'll to you. We'll put that guys. up on this Yeah, one.
4: the Facebook group. There's a Rocketeer Facebook group that posts a lot of interesting stuff. I'm sure you guys are well aware yeah. of that
1: one. Uh, what's the Builders one, uh, Hal, that we we received a, a couple of people uh, through through their site?
2: Oh, the, uh, the Replica Prop yeah, re- Forum. That's oh, a, really? yeah, the online form and things not, like not that. Just, it's there, not just so... props,
1: but they also do a lot of things related to the Rocketeer. But, uh... right,
2: well, there's even a there was even a guy there who documented his build of the vacuum cleaner. Wow! The, uh, <laughs> is the uh, what did we wow. say? We we joked that we had an episode of the podcast called the Vacuum Cleaner Minute because we talked about that being a Kenmore Commander with these added fins and a Hoover logo on it and wow. things. And, right. and somebody found the original Kenmore vacuum, and and that's right, and, and he was. Uh, and wanted well, to he recreate building
1: that. Building a uh, um, a, uh, a box for it too, if I remember correctly, with the authorized personnel and all that. Right? Yeah,
2: building building yeah. the proper case. <laughs> uh, that's that was, really funny. That was just awesome.
0: Uh,
1: but, uh, yeah, just stunning stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's it, this—you've created, like you said, a legacy that will continue. I mean, people, everybody that I've ever known that's ever seen this movie will watch it again and recommend it to others. And it just—I I, guess—it's a little form of immortality that you're—you know—the genius the oh, putting it together. Is continuing on. Well,
3: well, you know when they had the twentieth uh, anniversary screening at the El Capitan Theater here in, in Hollywood, which is where it premiered. Um, that was the first opportunity that I had to take my kids to see the movie on a big screen because my older daughter was about two, and my oh well, my younger daughter hadn't even been born yet. I I remember my wife was pregnant when we went to the premiere. And, um, so they, of course, had seen it on television or on, you know, video and stuff. But for them to get to see it on the big screen with all the people there and the actors and we sat right behind Bill Campbell, I mean, they had a great time. And that, that was really fun for me. And Danny brought his family and, and that was, that was really cool. That was a cool night. And a lot of people were there. Joe was there and, and Bill Deere was there and Kevin Smith moderated and, and, uh, Then afterwards they had a um, uh, a little – there's a little museum down the street from the El Capitan and everybody walked over there and they had a bunch of displays from the film. And it was just a great night. It was a memorable night and and I was really, really happy to have that kind of second premiere of the movie with friends and family that didn't get to see it the first time around. So that was great. Um, That was a great night.
1: Uh, well, hopefully there'll be uh, another one at the 30th. We'll see. We'll see what what happens. Yeah,
3: or maybe a Blu-ray with some extras. Yeah, that would be nice. It's it? Like or a 4K it's or something, Yeah. You know. Something, I mean,
1: <laughs> uh, maybe
2: maybe a Blu-ray with every episode of the podcast crammed <laughs> on it.
1: Yeah. Or, or, or a better version of uh, Excitement the in the Air besides the VHS copies that everybody seems to have. Oh yeah, oh Jesus. Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, I don't know. That one always puzzled me because you'd think I was really sure for the anniversary one they were going to or for the Blu-ray that they'd round a few people up and do some comments and I that was really a missed opportunity and I don't know why they didn't didn't
1: do it. Yeah, it's 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 a puzzler. But uh eventually somebody somebody will realize it at Disney that there, I mean, there's I there's for no other practical matter but there's money to be made if they actually provided products uh, that people would Sure there <laughs> is. It maybe <laughs> with
4: the maybe with the sequel they'll <laughs> yeah. do it. We'll, well, guys. Well, well, we'll really yeah, yeah. Though. Thank, thank
1: you so much. I re, re, appreciate you for going going so late with this, and uh, thanks for helping us close out the uh, the series. No, it's, it's been a pleasure, and it was great to have Paul on. And
3: uh, well, I'm I'm happy that I was able to join you guys for this yeah. uh, and throw my dented two cents in. Um, but it's also, you know, like I said, this is a really cool document of the movie for me and Danny as well. You know, to listen to other people's stories and. And to have all this, I think it's a it's a really great thing that you guys did. It's really uh it it's, it, it, it's something to add to our collective memory of the, making the movie and, and it's really nice. I'm glad you guys did yeah,
1: it. It's been a, like a big campfire to sit around and tell stories and I just can't believe how many people joined us at the campfires. <laughs> it's been it's been yeah, awesome. I
3: mean, Bill was on like what, 10 times or something? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, and he'll
2: He's probably pushing yeah, 20. I he's <laughs> 20. And uh seriously. Yeah, so, uh,
1: and, uh, uh, hopefully we'll we'll, we'll so, continue we'll continue to have special ones at, special episodes on after this is after we finish here, if in case any news comes up or who knows maybe there's a TV series in this somewhere we'll we'll hopefully bring some back hey, but, exactly that would be nice, uh, we'll,
2: or when uh, when Jennifer Connelly comes beating down our door saying please can you do an episode with <laughs> me. <laughs> sure. We begrudgingly shrug and say, how's, okay. House dream come true. Fine. But we'll
1: see. Wow. But anyway, th- <laughs> thank you all for being on the show. Uh, for people who would like to continue our conversation, we're always available on social media, Twitter, Rocketeer Minute, uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Rocketeer Minute, the great big website, com. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play, and you can uh, keep up with us all the time. Um, but we will continue uh, closing out. We have an interesting discussion about the industrial light and magic tomorrow. So please join us here Tuesday on the Rocketeer Minute. So until next time, over and out.
0: Get him, kid.